a relationship doesn't break because somebody else breaks a relationship. You don't lose money because somebody steals away from you. It's also because you have been responsible for a large part of it. So that why me is a very convenient way for us to blame other people. But when it happens with loss, and especially, and this I have experienced with people who have lost younger people, their children, for example, why me becomes extremely difficult question to answer. Hello everyone, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Lovely to have all our participants joining in. As you're joining in, do share with us where, where you're joining in from. I'm Kiva from Kocharya. I'm joining in from India. We have two very special guests with us today. I think you all already know them really well. We have with us our program director, Cindy, with us and co-founder, Ram. Before we begin the webinar today, it would be lovely if you could all use the chat box, share with us who you are, where you're joining in from. We also have with us Sylvester uh, from Kocharya and He's going to be the chat box moderator today. Hello, Ruta. Hello, Robert, welcome. Hello, Venus. We have VS from Hyderabad, Vira from Hungary, Suraj from New Delhi. Lots of different places, lots of people coming in. We have Azizur from Bangladesh. Welcome, welcome everyone. Lovely to have you all here today for our Masters of Coaching webinar. So this month we have followed the theme of grief to acceptance. And uh, for those of you who joined in for the different uh, weekly webinars, we explored grief in, in different, different ways. Uh, and today we're going to dig deeper with Cindy and Ram as they explore what loss and grief uh, look like. Because I think for most of us who've either experienced it or have had people close to us who've probably experienced it, I'm sure we'll all agree that it's something which which is not easy at all to manage. There are emotions and thoughts that we sometimes find extremely difficult to understand. Uh, forget about exploring those. It, it's just very, very difficult to just be in that space. And one of one of the feelings that kind of takes grip uh, over, over our thinking or our way of being is guilt. Uh, and then the feeling of helplessness coming in from there. So in today's conversation with Cindy and Ram, we're going to explore uh, how grief plays out, uh, how guilt plays out, and how, how one can navigate through these feelings uh, to be able to 
overcome the grief to reach a place of acceptance. So I'm going to pause now and I'm going to invite Cindy uh, to please take over. Thank you, Kira. Um, Ram is known to most of you, so I'm not going to do any introduction. I do, however, want to start with a question. Please type into the chat box and let us know your thoughts around, is there some kind of grief that you're currently experiencing? And grief or loss, whether it's someone or something, the question I have is, what emotions are you experiencing? What emotions are associated with your grief? Please type in the chat box. We'd love to hear from you. Today's webinar is going to take a slightly different format. Ram would um, talk about or do a, a short a presentation without any slides, of course, on a particular topic, on a particular piece of this topic. And we will introduce those little pieces as we go along. We will then stop and engage in some dialogue and of course, look at all your questions and notice if there's something need answering immediately and we'll engage with that. We'd love for you throughout this webinar to engage with us via questions, sharing your thoughts or use the Q&A box. From time to time, Ram and I will also have this habit of interrupting each other with with regards to more open-ended questions, or if there's a learning moment, we'll explore that a bit more. So, you know, be okay that we have that agreement between us. I'd like to, you know, invite Ram into the first subtopic around mind, body, neuroscience, around grief and loss. Ram, over to you. Yeah, okay. Let me first uh, define for myself the way that I understand. Perhaps uh, different people understand these in different ways. Psychologically, they might have many other terms. Um, grief and then guilt and what really, because grief is not normally directly associated with guilt. I'm associating it with guilt based on experience and on some other studies that have been done and why I do that. And then we would go into uh, a little bit more detail in terms of the mind-body interaction that you asked for, Cindy. First of okay. all, I mean, in a very, very broad sense, in the brain, we have three parts. Um, there's one called uh, the reptilian brain or where the memories, maybe long past memory of our genes and everything is stored just about the spine in what's called cerebellum area. And you would find that's a brain that is um, common as the name implies in reptiles, fish and so on, uh, which are the earliest kind of older species that evolved. And as the evolution took place and moved towards, let's say, birds, mammals, and so on, the second part of the brain that developed was the limbic brain. 
which contains organs like the thalamus, the hypothalamus, amygdala, hippocampus, and so on. And we'll come to it in a little bit later in terms of detail. And finally, in terms of the primates, um, like chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, and so on, you have the development of the frontal cortex. And with the humans, the frontal cortex is a fairly large part as compared to the total brain mass and even the body brain mass. Now, the limbic brain is primarily about emotions, whereas the frontal cortex is primarily about thinking, cognitive actions, and the reptilian brain is more about past memories, survival, flight, fight, those kind of uh, autonomous, autonomic systems as they are called. Now, grief generally is defined as an emotion. And the two primal emotions which Normally, if you go into a deeper analysis of what emotions are in a psychological term, as well as in a spiritual term, and chakras as well. It's usually about the fear and greed, or fear and desire, attraction and repulsion, which is really what leads to the flight or fight. The flight is away, and the fight is to get. And many neuroscientific uh, concepts and postulations are defined on that basis. Now, these are mirrors. Wherever you have a desire, you have a fear. The fear of the loss of that desire, potentially or anticipated or in real terms. In a simplest sense, every breath that we take is from a desire to live on, to survive. So we would like, we have a desire that each exhalation is followed by inhalation. That's a core desire which keeps us alive. The moment you stop the desire, maybe you stop living, or maybe you don't have the desire to keep living, you are disengaged from that whole desire as well. Now in most people, the lack of, or the lack of opportunity to reach the desire or having the desire fulfilled and losing it, the loss of it is what causes fear. And grief is associated with this fear. So in a simple sense, grief is about a loss of anything. Some of you here have said relationships, some of you said about broken marriages, some of you said about something else and so on and so forth. So it could be multiple things. It could be a physical loss, for example. It could be an emotional loss in terms of losing someone dear. It's a fear of losing oneself, for example. It could be a monetary loss. It could be a loss of position, power, etc. And for those of you who may have some knowledge about the Eastern scriptures and so on, there's a verse in the Bhagavad Gita which talks about, Krishna talks about the fears of different kinds of people. He said, what the scholars fear most, and of course he uses the caste, names is the loss of ego that I'm going to be bested by somebody in an argument or somebody knows more than me. And the warrior is afraid of losing a physical fight, losing his courage, for example. A tradesman or a, sorry, a trader or a businessman would, its greatest fear would be one of loss of wealth. And finally, anyone who is a skilled person 
It could be anybody from a computer worker to uh, maybe an artisan sculptor would be about those specific skills and abilities that you have that I might lose. So all of these, whether it is real, whether it's anticipated, whether it applies to yourself or someone you are uh, working with, someone who you have deep affection for, or even if it's tribal, any of those things, the loss of something that you either have or you potentially wish to have, or you are saying that it's an anticipated or whatever it is, that results in grief. And it's a natural, pretty natural phenomenon for most of us. The fear very often translates into grief. Now, Kubler-Ross, the most famous uh, sort of postulation on grief, the stages of grief, five stages of grief. And she said that any grief starts with denial of that loss. It is followed by anger as to why am I the person to suffer that grief? And it's a bargaining in terms of what do I do now to cope with it? How can I get it back and do whatever I have to do? Then none of these work. And then you go into depression and finally come to an acceptance. And usually it is defined as a time-based process. But what I would like to later go on in the second half of this uh, session is to remove it from a time base into something that you can actually influence and make things happen. And I would also be adding this additional element of guilt, which is not mentioned by Kibler Ross and how it relates. Now, a simple question to ask is, many people, the reason why we are having actually this conversation is that when I posted my first blog on the subject, that guilt is very much a part of the grief process. There are quite a lot of people who said, yes, we feel the grief. And there are quite a few people who said, oh no, what are you talking about? I never feel any guilt. Now the question I would like to ask those people, if there are any of you here, is did you actually then feel grief? Whatever you felt at that point in time, was it grief? And I, I'm not being sarcastic. I'm not being uh, smart here. In fact, right through my life, I have never felt grief the way that most other people define it. I never cried at the loss of anyone. I mean, I've lost several people. I lost my sister, I lost my parents, I lost my grandmother, grandfather, great-grandmother, who I deeply loved and grew up with, and many other friends, close friends. I have lost colleagues. Yes, I felt sadness, but I never ever, even at the time when I cremated my parents, I had tears in my eyes. Now, is that normal or not? I have no idea. But over a period of time, for whatever reason, I had disengaged myself from the fear of death, including my own. I don't quite know how it happened, but it started happening at a fairly early age, where I still remember picking up people from an accident where they were deeply injured, they were going to die, I knew that, but I had absolutely no hesitation in going there and carrying them out, even though I could have died in that process. Or there was another time when I had to remove some corpse and corpses from kind of an accident zone where there are many others. Uh, and I happen to be a, a Brahmin a scholar who's traditionally supposed to be uh, deeply scared of all these kind of things. And there were many others who were far more 
physically and otherwise braver than I'm supposed to be. And they ran away and I was the one who did that. But why? It, I, it, that's not a point. The point is, is it possible for a human being not to go deeply into grief? It is possible. And when that happens, certainly there is nothing as guilt which is associated with it. The question that I would like to ask is, if someone says, I never felt guilt, do you actually feel grief? There's nothing wrong if you don't feel grief. The question we often also ask by many people is, do animals, do your pets feel grief? And anyone who has had animals with them, especially dogs, you know that they feel grief. They feel grief about their own owners, they feel grief about another. Like our dog, we had two, one died, and it took a long time for the other to get over that. And every time we go out of home, I think the dog feels that, especially my wife, we are gone, we are dead. And when she can we come back, first of course, there's a tremendous amount of jubilation, she gets really upset, and she won't even come near us for a while. And I'm saying, seeing this, I mean, I seen cows and buffaloes being led to slaughter. And I can see it in their eyes. And you might have seen that too. You might have seen photographs. So animals feel grief. Most mammals and feel grief. Maybe others also feel grief. So humans generally tend to feel grief, but how they express it can be different. The moment you come into guilt, it's slightly different. Grief, I would define as an emotion, which is coming from the limbic system. Guilt, on the other hand, is a cognitive issue. It's, it's arising from the frontal cortex, somewhere in the frontal cortex. It's not the amygdala that drives it. Some people say it's something called insula, whatever it is that drives it. I, I don't know enough about that. Now, grief is cognitive to the extent that it's about when you start taking responsibility for that which caused the grief that I'm in some way responsible. I could have prevented it perhaps, or I'm directly responsible. And that leaves an extremely powerful feeling, which can be equally, uh, I mean, it could be far more detrimental than grief, as it were. And I would personally say that I know people, whether it's a coincidence or otherwise, today there might be some empirical evidence to that, that uh, some of the reasons why people have cancer and so on is because of the guilt that they carry through their lives. So that guilt is grief itself. You could sort of say grief, fear, anxiety. These are different shades of what grief is. Whereas guilt, the cognitive aspect of it, about our role in that particular loss, which causes a grief, is very much a cognitive function. And this could lead into, for some of us, into regret about what we have done, what we have lost, or even a regret about the anticipated loss, anticipated grief, etc. So it could be about regret about something that I wanted to have, but I didn't have, and so on. And in some, it could lead to remorse. Yeah, I did that and I tremendously sorry about it. And actually remorse is probably remorse as, as it could be a very good solution in a way to guilt and grief that I genuinely feel remorse about it. And I'm really looking for forgiveness in a way, 
And the whole Oponopono is based on that. For me to take responsibility about that I have caused someone something, a grief or a loss or something of that sort. And I am responsible for it. Whether I am, I am, I am not, it doesn't matter. And therefore, I go deep within myself, search for it, till I find something that I have to overcome. In some way, could have caused that loss to somebody else, a grief to somebody else. So I give myself, I seek the forgiveness of other people. From there, I move into loving myself, loving other people, and go into gratitude. And believe me, I started practicing Ho'oponopono about 12 years ago, when I started my learning from Leon Vanderpoel, one of my mentors. And it has been of a tremendous value to me. So working towards remorse, getting rid of remorse, is going to help a lot in terms of guilt, in terms of grief, in terms of regrets, many of those kind of things. And some of them, especially if it's about regret, the lighter shades of it, regret, anxiety, and so on, they could also come from conditioned beliefs about our own insecurity, uh, whether it's about insecurity of our ego position, about what we are achieving, and so on and so forth. All these things can contribute. So I'll, I'll stop here at this point in time. And, and so the reason why I introduce guilt in this equation is when I look at the first three elements or even the four elements of Kibbutz uh, denial, anger, bargaining, and depression, in my experience with literally hundreds, perhaps thousands of people, working uh, at a part of time when I was in healing and I was uh, the spiritual path. I worked with a lot of people who suffered from various kinds of losses and grief as well. And I found at least an Eastern concept uh, in the context, Eastern context. There was really a denial that it happened. Why me is a question. And that comes usually as an anger, as a frustration. It's not as if there are probably occasions where people say, hey, this hasn't happened, I don't want to believe it, but that's a very small percentage, I guess. It's a denial and the anger and, and then arising out of the anger. Is there some way it can be mitigated, the bargaining, and it leads to uh, depression? So there are, there are multiple shades of those kind of things uh, that could be happening. So I'll stop here for a moment. Uh, Cindy, if you have anything, if there is something else which comes up in the chat that uh, you might like me to look at. Please, please feel free to type your questions. So Ram, just to pick up some of the things you're saying, which is very interesting. So it, it seems like an initial reaction is all around emotions. It's more emotional. Around the sadness, helplessness, whatever you're feeling when, there is, when you lose someone. And it seems like over time, because you said guilt is cognitive, it seems like it's something settles in the thinking. And we begin to ask questions like, why me? Why did this happen to me? Or, you know, why didn't I do that? I could have done that and I didn't. And it becomes more a thinking space. Lots of questioning begins to happen. And I found from experience and listening to others that over time, that kind of guilt thinking settles into other aspects of life. Like for example, inability to sleep properly, eat properly, 
socialize as the person normally would. So then it feels like it's become, it slowly creeps into everyday life. So how do we, how do we, what happens when those questions begin to sit, settle with us as if it's the truth? Sorry, can, can you repeat the last part of it? How can we walk? Yes. Sorry, I didn't get it. What happens when those questions we're asking, why me? What happens when that begins to settle as the truth? Okay, look, first of all, the why me part of it in terms of this can, can never be answered. And if, especially, this very often happens when um, pretty much loss of life, for example, or sometimes breakups in relationships and whatever else. The answer is very, very simply, apart from the fact of life, yours or somebody else's, if it's anything to do with financial, it's to do with physical, it's to do, the why me answer, if we're really honest, it's very, very clear. Because we cost it, period. A relationship doesn't break because somebody else breaks a relationship. You don't lose money because somebody steals away from you. It's also because you have been responsible for a large part of it. So that why me is a very convenient way for us to blame other people. But when it happens with loss, and especially, and this I have experience with people who have lost younger people, their children, for example, why me becomes extremely difficult question to answer. The only thing I can say is that very famous example of the Buddha, where Gautami came to him with a child in her arms and said, people told me that you are the only person who can bring this child back to life. Unless Jesus did differently 500 years later, Buddha asked a very simple question. Not a question, he asked her, Ma, I'm terribly sorry for your grief. Yes, I can help you. But can you get me a spoonful of mustard seeds from anyone who hasn't experienced death so far? And the story is very simple. She searched and searched and searched and I came back. I have learned a lesson. So giving someone life as is in the Christian faith is to my mind is not authentic. I, I'm not implying anything by Jesus or the Bible or whatever. But to make people understand that death is normal. There is no other way that you can, life can be experienced, that you will experience sorrow along with this, which is what the Buddha said, is something that has to be deeply understood. Problem is, we have learned behavior from childhood, the way that we are brought up. We all come with certain faiths and this is what needs to happen. And one of those things would be irrespective of how we see other people dying. And Mahabharata, there's this famous example of what's called the Akshatrasana, where the god of death asks Yudhishthira, what is the strangest thing that you have seen? And he says, the strangest and the funniest thing, the most ironic thing that I've seen, we see people dying all the time around us. And we ourselves believe that we need to be immortal. So the fundamental, let's say, the fear of anything, any loss, and therefore grief, and therefore anxiety, and therefore uh, guilt, etc., arise 
arises from this basic fear of death. Believe you me, it's, I mean, there's enough research that is, that is why this, the fear of death is the most common fear, they say fear of public speaking. Both of them are related in the sense, it's a loss of our ego. It's a loss of we, I as a person. Who am I suddenly becomes unclear. Except for people like Socrates who said, okay, they say after this life, there's no life and we don't know what it is. And that's fine, it's fantastic. And he says, after this life, there is life. That's also fine. As long as I don't get the same wife who was supposed to be a shoe. So he said, either which way, when I come back to life, I don't come back to life, it doesn't matter. But fundamentally, we need to lose that fear of death. And I, I think you're with me or possibly we did that somewhere. Uh, I do an, what is called an elemental meditation, which is about people going back into their five elements, what's called the Panchabhutas in our system, which is the earth, the water, the fire, the air, and the space. And that meditation, if practiced regularly, can generally reduce your fear of death and can eliminate it as well. Now, having said that, the other way of looking at it is whenever this question about why me, etc., that is coming up, assuming for a moment that is springing from that fear, that loss, that grief, perhaps of guilt, or regret, whatever those emotions are. Let's look at the briefly the fundamentals of how the mind body reacts and what happened. Most of these emotion based, not the guilt, but the rest of them, they are part of the autonomic system, what is today called the polyvagal system, the nervous system, where the first responders in the mind are your sense receptors whether they are the visual at the back, the auditory somewhere in the side, those which about the skin and the touch and the taste and everything else. These are the purest form of data, metadata that is being collected. And from these receptors, the first point where they go to is the limbic system, the thalamus, hypothalamus, amygdala, and parallel to the hippocampus where the memory is stored in addition to the cerebellum. And the memory has our previous experiences. And I'm generally talking about, let's say, post the age of seven, where there is a certain amount of consolidation of memory. We move from what is called the theta brainwave into the beta kind of brainwave, alpha and beta, where in the memory storage, that data which comes is compared, filtered, and then it passes it back to the amygdala, saying, hey, this is what happened to me at that particular point in time. This is the kind of experience that I had. I felt joyful, I felt sad, I felt grief, I felt something else, frustration, et cetera, et cetera. And this is what was associated with it. Now, if that is urgent, which is relating to survival, the amygdala immediately sends it to what is called the pituitary gland, and from there to adrenaline. It's called the HPA axis, hypothalamus, pituitary, and adrenaline axis it activates a flight of fight response. And if it's not that urgent, it senses that there's a time lapse, there's no problem, there's no loss of life, it's not a threat to that individual. It then takes only milliseconds for this to happen. It sends it to the prefrontal cortex, the orbital cortex, parts like ancilla and so on, 
where the processing takes place and definitive action takes place. And that again goes back to the same system, the pituitary and the endocrine system. So different kinds of chemicals, neurotransmitters are created, which could include dopamine, which is a reward system, the serotonin, the mood controller, oxytocin about love and compassion, cortisol and adrenaline, which produce stress and therefore drive you into action and so on and so forth. There's GABA, which creates anxiety. There are multiple such things. Essentially, what really happens is a lot of this, we don't have control. I'm using this word advisedly. As long as the subconscious, unconscious, feelings, the conditioned memories, the traumas, which drive us. Because for the first seven years of life, we are in a state which is called the theta wave pattern of the brain, which is like a hypnotized state, hypnotic, semi-hypnotic state. So we are influenced by whatever we are told by other people. We don't really question. The subconscious, the unconscious doesn't understand the word no. People tell us, you, you, you shouldn't be doing this because something may happen to you. The child doesn't hear the no part of it, which means well for that child, but understands the no part of it, don't do it. So everything is about don't do it. So that negativity is put into you. Don't talk to strangers. Don't do this, don't do something adventurous. Don't climb a tree because you'll fall down and break your neck. But forgetting that, that don't part of it is associated with a logical, something that you want to avoid and therefore it is being done. So the whole set of no responses, which are programmed into it, we know now that at least 80% of the time, perhaps 90% of the time, that is what drives us. And therefore we have very little scope in terms of how the sensory input hits us. And it's not only the new sensory input that hit us, but that stored memory itself. For example, if you were to just cover your eyes, you sit in meditation, deep meditation, and maybe hang yourself in a zero gravity space, you will still experience all this because you don't need any external inputs. The recorded memory within you will play everything back. You can just do that experiment. Close your eyes, sit in a room closed with no other inputs, sit down and start writing whatever thoughts come up to you. In 10 minutes, you will have the absolute profile of a mad person because there'll be no connection. It'll lead you from one to another. Total idiocy. And I have done this many, many times with thousands of people. And there is no sense, no logic, no nothing. And these are our basic insecurities which are coming up. So this is how the mind works. Whether you have suffered from PTSD, a trauma, and that trauma is repeated through nightmares or whatever that happens to you, or it's a loss that you expect to happen or use unlikely, but let's say in the middle of uh, Broadway in New York, you suddenly come face to face with a trigger which is growling at you. All these feelings are very similar. Immediately, that flight fight response is generated within you. Deep fear, deep fear of loss of yourself or somebody else and potentially many other things which will happen. And when it's calmed down a bit, then your cognitive response kicks in. Guilt comes in. Oh, I could have done something different. Maybe I could have taken another road. Maybe somebody let the tiger out. Oh, whatever it may be. So this is how it works. So the question 
what I have answered for you is the why me is to my mind is a useless question because for losses which let's say apart from loss of life or to someone else tribally or within the family uh, for which there is nobody responsible nothing can happen for everything else I would say the why me is answered by the fact that you whoever is experiencing it you are responsible for in some way or another so that it's for us to reflect and find out and yeah once that is understood we could move into a solution and answering process Now, participants, the chat box is certainly gone very quiet. Ram, somebody wants you to repeat the last line. Ruda. Ruda. I already forgot to put my last line. Yeah, even I forgot it because I had waiting to be checked. Mm. Um, yeah. Oh, I mean, you asked the question, why me? What I said was. Yes. And this is about, even, even if it's about a loss of life, the why me part of it is because you don't understand. And that is why. But for everything else, whether it's a loss of life, loss of limb, loss of somebody else's property, your property, etc., the why me is because you are responsible. You did something. You don't have to feel guilty about it because guilt is an expression of what I could have been or what I should have been, what I would like to have been but I wasn't. It's already in the past. There is nothing that you can do about it unless you time travel. And I don't know how to make you time travel or for me to time travel. But if you're looking at the present and you're looking at the future from a coaching perspective, I have a solution how you go in the present moment, how do you experience the past and you get rid of it. That is will answer you this thing. But so what I'm saying is the why me question is and using a little more aggressive word, is a foolish question. Because it doesn't have any meaning, it doesn't make any sense. And which is why the whole open opponent works. Because it says you are responsible. I have to accept, yes, I have done something, I'm responsible. Now let me do something to get out of it. Mm. But Ram, many, many people, I shouldn't say but, and many people at that point don't know it's the foolish question. They just sit with it, right? It's almost as if that becomes a reality. All those I could have, should have, didn't uh, type of questions. But you hit onto something. You said, I know what to do. I mean, I can tell you what to do, how to address it. Why don't we go there, you know? How did you move from the state of stuck or thinking that there's no other alternatives? How do you gently get somebody uh, I shouldn't say gently you can do it either way get somebody while coaching them out of that space into something more where they be can begin to see little opportunities of the perceived way what is real and what is not yeah we'll get into it but just to go back to that who am I somebody asked uh, some, something else related to it why me is a question it's passing the buck question. I'm not responsible. Why me? What did I do wrong? 
somebody else did wrong, the God, the creator, the nature, or somebody else, why me? And, 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 and the answer to that is, you are responsible in some way, and you better accept it. Okay. And which is why the, the, the why me question, I know if somebody is suffering from, I, I won't say guilt, but somebody is suffering from grief, it's not going to help by posing that question. So it's going to take some time before that immediate grief uh, evaporates. But guilt certainly has to be faced squarely. If somebody asks, why me? You better look at it and say where it starts with you. If you are not responsible at all, why would you feel guilty? Because guilt automatically presumes that you feel responsible for something, whatever that be, the reason is. Be a young child died, why shouldn't I have died first? Do you have any control over it? No, you're not responsible for it. So where does the why me question come up? And somebody asked a question, if you have a painless death, quick and painless death, look, 80% of the people that I have talked to, they are still afraid because your identity is lost. I mean, it's all very easy cognitively to say, I'm not afraid of death. But I've seen people because I worked with Reiki and spiritual other healing methods, how afraid people are when they are in that stage where they feel they are going to die, whether it's pain or not pain. Yes, those with pain probably actually say, hey, let me get out of here. I want to die. But those without pain and who probably think that they're going to die, that they, quick, there's, there's no such thing as a, I mean, <laughs> if you can guarantee quick death, I have to put a bullet to your head. But um, the, the fact that if you start thinking about it, somebody is going to put a bullet to my head, that, that itself is going to give you sleepless nights. So uh, there is no such thing as uh, a, a quick and painless death. It, it, there's only one thing which is about getting out the fear of death, that you are energy, you're not matter, and that energy is going to live on. You don't have to become a Ramana Marishi to be able to do that. It's a practice. It is something that you have to start practicing. We have meditative practices, which I'm not able to do that here in this session. We can arrange it in some other kind of program uh, because some of them take a little bit of understanding how to do that. So you need to have background. But the point is that it's possible. So you, let me talk a little bit about if there are any other questions, Cindy, let me know. Otherwise, the, the process that I wanted to take people through to work out their guilt and grief, as well as other people's. I can, I can briefly talk about that. Yes, please do that now. Yeah. So whether it is guilt, loss, fear, anxiety, regret, any of these feeling negative feelings, irrespective of the intensity, irrespective of what it is. The simple way I have experienced and today, this is scientific evidence. I have enough. Uh, some of you might have come across Huberman Labs. There are other people who, which is fairly respected, the podcast, and there are other, other scientists, some who I think very highly of, but uh, they have critics like Bruce Lipton and so on. Many of them have clearly said this is possible. The possibility is this. This is called reliving the experience. 
which is very often called a somatic methodology of handling sensations. It's a reverse of what really happens to you. The sensory perceptions, the receptors pass the message on, amygdala starts working, etc. They are stored in your memory. The guilt feeling operates from that memory. It doesn't operate from reality. So you induce a situation in which you start experiencing that which is bothering you. The incident which caused initially the grief or later the guilt or anxiety or the regret or whatever. So what do you do? Sit in a comfortable position, sit with the, one of the things that I have found when I found it's difficult to achieve results is because people are wearing, wearing very tight clothes. Um, they have belts which are basically separating the body one half from another. They are wearing clothes which separate it. Then if you get them to move into something more comfortable, which is comfortable clothing, loose clothing, et cetera, and you get them to sit down or lie down and relax, breathe, take a few deep inhalations, then each inhalation followed by a short holding, comfortable holding, slow exhalation, get yourself as comfortable as you can. And if people are not very comfortable or knowledgeable or unable to experience the somatic responses in your body, get them to tense their muscles first from the feet onwards, from the ankles, the toes, the ankles, the bodies, different parts of the body, stress themselves and then relax and each happens okay. Let them know the difference between what is tense, what is relaxed between tension and lack of stress. And at that point in time, with them breathing normally, whether they are sitting down, whether they are lying down, whatever they are doing, whichever state they prefer to, get them to experience whatever that has led to this. It could have been a loss of something, a loss of a person, a loss of a limb, a fear of a loss. It could be a traumatic incident that happened somewhere, etc. And in some cases, if it is in the past, it has caused them difficulties in terms of madness or whatever it is. If you need to hold their hand with their permission, if you would like to do that, that I'm here for you, um, and you can wake up anytime that you want, that you can get out of it. As they experience it, ask them to tell you where they are experiencing it. Doesn't matter where it is. So to be able to recognize it initially when you're doing the tensing and relaxing, ask them, especially the thoracic region, ask them to tense it either by scapular contraction or thoracic contraction, whichever way it is, and then relax it so they can the difference. And when they actually experience it, they would be able to figure out where they are feeling the stress. Generally, anything to do with deep grief and fear, et cetera, is felt in the lower abdomen region. Sometimes when it is milder, it comes up to the navel region. When it is more about relationship, it comes up to the heart region. So it is generally anywhere between the throat and your lower abdomen region and get them to stay with it. Let them just breathe. Make sure that they breathe, continue to breathe, not hold their breath. But as they breathe, it will certainly, there's a morphing that takes place. And this has been proven beyond doubt that whatever intensely is felt, and while it is being felt that intensely, if they are capable of defining it, ask them to, ask them to tell you, does it have a color? Does it have a structure? 
Is it gaseous, liquid, or solid? Does it have ragged edges? You'd be surprised. Whether it is hallucinatory, whether that's what they are feeling, whatever it is, people are able to explain this. And this I'm speaking from actual experience with many people, and I know many other people who have done this as well. So people will start feeling something very intense. Let's say, for example, something which is red in color, fiery, it's causing some pain, or it's rocky, it is granular or something, and gradually it starts morphing. And at the end of it, something happens, uh, sort of it settles down and they start feeling a kind of a hope or a calmness or stillness that arises out of this. So I'm not no longer feeling this. I'm uh, experiencing something very different from what I started with. And that is reflected in the body sensation. Believe you me, and I, I'm not exaggerating, and I can do with uh, any one of you who doubts it separately at some point in time, if you are willing to be recorded, and that serves as a testimonial, I'm willing to do that. And the guilt is removed. I've done it with enough number of people to be confident that this technique works pretty much universally. And, and this, process, sorry, this process needs to be repeated. Uh, it, it needs to be anchored. So it's not just one time. You do it, you feel better, then keep repeating it a few times, two, three times, four times maybe. And normally that initial guilt feeling is resolved or the grief feeling is resolved. Yes, sorry. No, it's okay. I was going to say, but it's very smart, Ram, because this is what I noticed. When, when it becomes guilt and it's all in the head and there's a whole lot of rationalizing, the narrative gets bigger and bigger and it becomes more solid. Like, you know, like I own this now, I feel responsible. It's solid and it's there. But what you're saying now, so, so the, more the more people speak about it, a lot of times it's not going to disappear. And when somebody had something onto it, the narrative just gets bigger. But what you're saying now is give it a different kind of a focus, a more a body experience. Because when you take it away from one space that it feels so in charge and you bring in another space like the body experience, huh, you're creating something different, right? Yeah, look, it's like this. I don't, this is an explanation which uh, some people might scoff, but then, as I said, I re uh, refer to Huberman, Huberman Labs. He's a professor of neurosciences and optics or whatever in Stanford, very reputed. He talks about visualization. He talks about what it does to you. So in this process, what's really happening is this. Memories, especially powerful and especially negative memories are stored visually because for most of us, the visual 80% uh, of our perception is through visual for most people for whom the eyes are active. These are stored as such. If you want to take an analogy, they are stored like video files. And the same thing like in a computer, you load the computer with video files, the computer crashes, it freezes. 
the same thing happens to us. The, the brain capacity slows down. What we are trying to do this, with this process is you are re-experiencing those visual memories, which let's say in a PTSD kind of a case, it causes nightmares or whatever it is, and if you're able to get them to experience this, people think that it'll damage them beyond anything. No, because they are already experiencing that damage. So the only thing that can happen is to do make it better, provided you go about it cautiously. And they hold the hands or whatever it is, and they experience it. Something that is experienced sensorily, it is then conveyed into the amygdala region, and then from there to the prefrontal cortex, then something happens. It's almost as if that entire memory, now the visual parts of the memory, gets compressed. I, I, I don't know what really happens. I mean, the simple word to use it, yeah, the video files, maybe they become text files or something. Okay. So they're still there to warn you, don't do this, so that you don't cross the road when the light is red, where you had an accident before and you're afraid, or if you see a tiger, avoid eye contact or move away, do whatever that you have to do. You understand all that. You're not being foolishly brave. The warning signs remain there, but you don't have the fear which freezes you like deer in the headlights of a car. And this is what I experienced. And the other funny thing that I experienced was that during this process of my training, I had the chance to work with about maybe half a dozen people who had had the so-called near-death experiences. There was, what I still remember is two young girls, they were from Brazil or somewhere. And um, they were traveling somewhere with their parents. Unfortunately, the, the muffler or something leaked. There was carbon monoxide in the car as they were driving. The parents gradually lost consciousness. They went and hit a tree or something. Parents died. These two girls survived. And they explained that this is what happened to them. The typical, I was going through a tunnel and suddenly I saw a light and I had this figure or voice which said, no, your job is not over, go back. And believe me, I mean, a lot of people think it is fantasy, but uh, I believe it's real because different people from different sources told me there's enough documented evidence about it. So what really happens is it's almost like that. So you, here you go through, relive this experience or the meditation that I work with people, elemental meditation. Earlier, I used to do a real death meditation, making you believe that you are gradually dying and you are dead. Now your body is being cremated. <laughs> a lot of people couldn't take it. Though I, I, I did it several times, I benefit from it. So you go through exactly the process of death or imaginary death. And somehow that shifts something in you, those visual memories get released. And that takes a lot of burden out of you. And someone asked me a question, do you, do you, do you think that the why me stands in the way of acceptance? It does, but then if you have the question, why me, you need to answer that question. So dodging that question doesn't help you. So if that question is coming up or if that question is coming up to someone that you are coaching, then ask them, why do you think this question is coming up for you? The very fact that you feel, ask a question, why me, it implies that you feel some way responsible. What is it? What is it that you feel responsible about? 
and you will get an answer. Hmm. That is there somewhere in your subconscious mind, unconscious mind. You will get an answer. That is because you feel guilty about something, that I could have done something differently. And, and I wrote about this in this blog. And it's a real incident where there was this woman who came to me in a meditation program where she had lost her husband. She felt that she had nagged him to go along with her in a vacation, not a vacation, a pilgrimage to both there. Uh, they were Taiwanese, uh, Chinese, and the husband died. And for six months, she was in morning clothes. And when she came to the program, she was like that. And suddenly the next morning, after I had done this meditation and explanation, and though it was through an interpreter, I couldn't even recognize her. And when I talked to her, she said, it's over, it's done. With. I know that I'm not responsible for anyone. And it happened to him. I'm sad about it. But now I would rather celebrate the memories that I had with him rather than mourn that he is gone. So that shift needs to happen. So yeah. I mean, this is not something that you can cover in one hour in a conversation. Uh, but yes, the, the, these are the pointers towards it. The simplest way that I have managed to look at this, rather than leave it to time to cure, any experience, any negative experience, if you are willing to stay with that experience, focus on it, re-experiencing it, however uncomfortable it may be at that point in time, and start looking at it within your body, sensorily, somatically, you will find that gradually the power of that experience over you, the power of that memory over you reduces and gets eliminated. I'm, I'm willing to guarantee anything on that. Hmm. That's powerful. Any questions, anybody or a discussion point? That you have. Someone said, we are, we are not rewriting over the memory. That, that okay, you are reframing the memory, but you're yeah. not, okay, maybe there's a subtle difference in it. Uh, yeah. Maybe that's what you meant. But you are looking at the memory in a different way. You're re-experiencing that memory is gone. So for those of you who want to know more about the reframing technique, there is this absolutely brilliant book by Richard Bandler. It is called... Uh, Something to do with happiness, something to do with uh, da, 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 da. <clears throat> get the life that you want. That book is available in PDF drive free, or you can buy it Amazon. He talks about, he mentions about almost what 50 or 60, maybe 100 different kinds of reframing in, in the NLP style, reframing exercises of anchoring yourself in a positive experience and going through the negative experience and how you can do that. <clears throat> My only caveat to that is first do this somatic experience first and then go into this, you will get far more power. And it works. The only thing is those of you who know about NLP, what I'm talking about is not about the past. You don't go anywhere near the past. You are just re-experiencing that emotion in your mind, whatever memories are stored in the present moment with the future objective in mind, a typical coaching exercise where you're looking to free yourself from that negativity. Whereas in NLP, typically a reframing, a six-step reframing, if those of you are familiar with mm -hmm. that, or whether you do timeline or anything of that sort, 
it actually means revisiting that experience at that point in time that happens. My personal experiences, that's not necessary. You can do it without it. So genuinely, you can do it through a coaching approach, which is looking at the present moment, moving into the future. Absolutely. There's a lot of lovely comments and questions coming through now, Ram. Get the life um, you want is the name of the book, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, our time is almost up. I'm going to have a look at the questions and see. Um, I'll send it to Ram. Maybe we can write another blog. Ram will write another blog on it or something. Um, we, we are at the end of our time. And one of the other, I recently was coaching somebody who was asking that question repeatedly, why me? And I, after doing a few exploratory questions asked, you know, how come just that one question is sitting with you? Are there no other questions? And the person, of course, responded with, what do you mean? And I said, well, you said you can't eat, can't sleep, can't focus. Is that not a question also staring up inside you? How can I sleep? Or how can I help myself to do more eating? Because those are simple, everyday survival lifestyle. So through this experience, uh, uh, Cindy, uh, I, I'll tell you, it'll make a huge difference. If yes. they experience whatever is making them ask repeatedly that question, why me, and go through this process, they will get an answer to it. That whether they are falsely blaming themselves, whether they're really a role in it. Savita makes a great point. She said somebody told her that guilt is, guilt is about having done something, experienced something, in the past with the wisdom that you had at that time. And you may have evolved over that over a period of time. So you are looking at it now in a different state of awareness or consciousness or wisdom at what happened, what I did at that point in time, which may have been wrong. And if you keep beating yourself and wearing, what do you call it, uh, helmets, hair coats and stuff like that, it's not going to help you. Flagellation is not going to help you. Genuine remorse and correction will help you. One way is to get rid of the emotions first. Then say, if you really seriously think that something else might help, if, if a young child died, something happened, can I do something for young children not dying or for them to be nurtured better or something of that sort, which helps you in a positive sense. We, yeah, I, I wish we had more time, but we just over time now. Ram, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I love, I, I would love to have gone through the technique. I mean, meaning you're demonstrating that. Um, but I think the way you explained it, and we have this on recording, we can listen to it again and get a lot of wisdom out of it. Well, if somebody wants to take a yes, they want to come out of the closet, is it? Wrong, wrong expression to use, but. Um, in in your one of your mastery classes, if someone is willing, I, I'm quite happy to. I wouldn't say happy. That's not again the right word, but uh, I, I will. I'll certainly work with them to try and figure out 
um, how to work on this, whether it's a why me question or some kind of a genuine guilt-based question that, yeah, I've done this, but um, how do I get out of it? Absolutely. Thank you, Ram. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, everyone, for being a part of this webinar. And um, I mean, I'm seeing your comments coming through. So thank you very much. And we'll pick this piece up again in maybe a different way if Ram gets to demonstrate it. Whoever wants to be client, let us know. Um, yeah. Thanks, Ram. Been a pleasure. Thanks, Kimar. All right, to me, Ramit Kocharya, CindyAtKocharya.com. And if you have any more questions, anything to follow up, I'll be quite happy to, this time, happy is the right word. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to blog about it. Uh, if there is something that I possessed uh, or possess now, which could be of help to you, I'm very, very happy to share that with you. Yeah, uh, you can be sure if Ram Singh is happy to do that, he is. Okay. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks, uh, Cindy. Thank you very much, indeed. It was a wonderful session. Okay. Thanks, Kimba, for having put the session through. Bye. Bye.